Welcome back to Bootability, a weekly interview series about the amazing ability people have to change our lives and the world if we're brave enough to tap into it. I'm your host, Jihi Jolly. Today we're talking to Lorena Garcia Boches, a young woman in Georgia who grew up around the Buddhist community and chanting. Her own study practice developed when she started college and faced some major challenges in her family and with her own mental health that drove her to dig deep for a way to move forward. Our conversation was so inspiring and we covered so many topics, how to grapple with multiple identities and feeling like you don't fit in anywhere, how to take care of your family when they're struggling, and how to find the courage to seek help for your own mental health if that's what you need. Ultimately, I realized that Lorena's whole story is an amazing example of how chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo can become fuel for taking steady steps to respect your own life, which includes resolving the doubt and pain that you might have in your heart, establishing a dream for your future, and taking great care of yourself. Since we're doing the seven-day refresh this week, I hope her story is a great inspiration for anyone who feels ready to refresh their attitude towards life and tackle what's in front of them one step at a time. Here's Lorena. Why don't we just start at the very beginning and let me have you introduce yourself. All right. So I am Lorena garcia Boches. I'm originally from uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina, where J. Cole is from, if y'all love that artist. He is my husband, <laughs> so I'll put that out there. Um, I am 25, and uh, I'm calling in from Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> awesome. And um, can you tell me, um, what are you up to these days? Like, are, what do you do for work? Are you studying? A little bit about your daily life so we get to know you. Okay, so currently I'm a second year master's student um, at Kennesaw State University in Kennesaw, Georgia. I'm studying integrative biology, so I'm integrating the my passion to work with refugees and underrepresented groups with healthcare and health disparities that we see in the United States. So I'm merging them two together because I've always had a passion to work with others, and I love science, so I really wanted to merge them together. Wow. Yes, I have lots of questions about how you decided to do that, which I'll ask in a little bit. Um, but why don't we start with sort of your childhood? It's always fun to hear like how people started, um, what they were like. So if you can tell me a little bit about um, how and where you grew up and when you were a kid, kind of what did you envision as your future? What was your your dream? So I think growing up, um, I come from a, a mixed race family, but also an immigrant family as well. So both my parents are very hardworking individuals. My father was in the military. Uh, my mother, she was stay-at-home mom at first, but then she decided to go into healthcare as well later on. Um, so seeing both my parents struggle a lot was something that I saw throughout childhood. We were always moving house to house, not just because my father was in the military, but sometimes, you know, we needed to go places that... Um, we could financially afford that were better off for us. And, you know, having to do that was moving from school to school. So I would say in total, maybe 15 or 16 different schools throughout my life. Really? Wow. Yeah. It, it was a lot, a lot of moving around. So a lot of friends that I lost, a lot of toys that I lost. And then, you know, my brother came along later on when we moved, um, after we moved to Georgia 
So my brother came along and then, you know, it was that kind of sibling rivalry of struggle. Um, and then eventually we moved back to North Carolina where I did my uh, high school years and I finished my undergrad degree. So it was a lot of moving around <laughs> and seeing yeah. that struggle and seeing, you know, my parents, have my mother go on to different jobs, working different odd jobs to pay rent and stuff. And it was, it was, it was difficult, but I think it was also rewarding as well. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a very packed childhood to move that much and <laughs> yes. to be navigating that much. What's the age difference between you and your brother? So we are six years apart. So when I was about to be six, he was born that July. So I'm an August baby. So. And so uh, just to follow up, you you mentioned that your, um, your family immigrated um, and that you're also mixed race. Can you just tell us a little bit about your family background? Yes. So my father's from a migrant worker family from uh, Texas. He was born actually in Matamoros, Mexico, which is a border town. And uh, he was the last one of the 12 siblings that he has. He's number seven. Um, Well, yeah, he's number seven to move back to the United States. So he was the last child born in Mexico and everybody else after him was born in the United States. So they migrated all through the Southwest and moved to different places and eventually settled back into Texas where he, you know, went to high school and did all that. So that's his side mm-hmm. of the family, very migrant worker, moving place to place, working in the fields and, and doing all that hard labor at a young age too. Um, and then my mother's side of the family, it's interesting because my great grandparents immigrated from Barbados to Panama to help build the canal. And then after my mom got older, she was like, you know, I'm going to move to Canada. So she left when she was 20 to go to Canada and study up there. And then hmm. she met my father when he was stationed in Fort, um, Fort Drum, New York. He went to Montreal to visit a, with his friend, his friend's girlfriend. Then my mother and dad met because she lived with my mom, who's my mother's roommate. So they met, and then she moved down to the U.S. They got married, and then I came about a year later, and then my brother came about. So it's very, yeah. very interesting. <laughs> yeah, what a path. My God, I feel like I know. you lived so many lives all before you probably turned 18. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing all of that background. I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss it a little bit more later, um, but it's helpful context. And um so now I'm curious about where Buddhism enters the picture, because, uh, yes, I mean, you have so many identities already and you're a Buddhist <laughs> on top of this. Yes. So when, how, why did you start practicing Buddhism? So um, my mother's side of the family are the ones that practice. So my grandmother was diagnosed with breast cancer. I believe it was in 1970. Um, and at that time, she wasn't practicing. But her aunt, so I guess that would be my great-great-aunt, um, introduced her to the practice and asked her, you know, why do you want to live? You know, what is your purpose? Like, why do you want to be here on this earth? She said, I want to live for my children. I want to see their children's children. So she said, okay, well, if you want to do that, then you need to chant. So she at first was hesitant, but then she started chanting. And she started to see her health improve tremendously. So from only giving her a couple years to live to now she's in her 70s, it was a big transformation. So through her, my uncle started practicing, my 
aunt and then my mother started practicing. Well, there's number three. She's a baby. She started practicing. So my mother's family practiced and then eventually she moved to Canada. So she saw more practitioners in Canada. Then when she met my father, my father um, also started practicing as well. And then I came along. <laughs> so it's like three generations of practitioners. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. That's wild. And um, and just from so many different places, too. So you, I'm assuming, then grew up in a home where people were chanting. It was sort of part of your life, similar to me. My parents already practiced by the time I came along. Um, but I, I feel like for like with whether it's a, any religion or family tradition, there comes a point where you you decide whether you're carrying it on or not. <laughs> yes, <very> so true. <laughs> when did you decide or like, did you always chant or was there a point in time that you were like, I think I'm going to start chanting every day? Um, I think I was chanting. I don't say I wouldn't say regularly, but when my mother asked me to chant with her, I would do it <laughs> just so that she wouldn't bother me anymore. <laughs> Um, and as I was like growing up in the practice, it was kind of difficult, I would say, because I think I was the only one that looked like me that practiced where I practiced. Like I didn't see a lot of different like mixed families practicing. It was either, um, people who were African-American that practiced or people who were Asian-American or different immigrants, but I didn't see anyone who was like Latin American practicing as well. And mm -hmm. also being a child of immigrants, you know, it was difficult to to navigate that identity as well, um, especially when it came around like friends, people would see me get picked up by my mom. One of my one of these little girls was like, so is that your mom? And I was like, yeah, it's my mom. It's like, are you sure? And I was like, yes, I'm sure. What do you mean? <laughs> Am I sure? And she was like, I don't know. It's just like, are you adopted? Like, I remember when someone asked me that question, because my mother's dark skinned. She's black. She's dark skinned. And I'm more of a lighter mm -hmm. complexion. And I look more like my father when I was growing up. Um, so getting that question asked was kind of like a shock to me. And I think a lot of mixed race children have that same issue when they go with mm -hmm. their parent. It's like, are you sure that's your father? Are you sure that's your mom? Um, and then I remember asking my mother that question, like, so am I adopted? <laughs> and she was Aww. like, no, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> so it was, it was that, uh, interesting, like conversation. And she was just like, it's okay. It's like, you know, you put some cream and coffee, it's going to turn a little different color. So <laughs> that's how you came out when your father and I got together. That's how you came to be. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, mm -hmm. So it was just interesting navigating that that route as well and then practicing also because I grew up in the Bible Belt. Not a lot of people really understand about Buddhism. You know, they think you have to go to some high off mountain and pray where you don't. Mm -hmm. it, it's here. You can, you can chant here. You know, where you are right now is your mountain, I guess you could say. So you can chant yeah. where you are. So growing up and <laughs> navigating those identities of being a Buddhist, being multiracial, being a child of immigrants, also being an American too. It was it was interesting to just grow up with all those identities. But I would say, you know, I chanted to help make my mother happy. <laughs> but I don't think I really started my practice until I actually went off to college. I think that's when I really, you know, solidified my actual practice. Mm. Yeah, I understand. And so um, 
Yeah, let's talk about that story. So when you went to college, um, you said you were uh, in North Carolina, right? You you did high school and college in North Carolina? Yes, I did. Um, so what was it like? I mean, when you left to go to college, I, I mean, that time-wise, age-wise is already like a big transition for most people, right? You're growing up, you're more independent, and you have to figure out what to do with your life. Um and yeah, like what was your sort of what was going on in your head and your heart, let's say, that made you start, okay, I'm going to start practicing. So I, I graduated high school when I was 17. So I was about to be 18 that year. Um, I decided to go to a school nearby because I didn't want to spend a lot of money going to a big school. Um, and to me, school name didn't really, I didn't really matter as long as they had the major that I was looking for and the resources then I was going to go. So I went to a historically black college um, in Fayetteville, North Carolina, called Fayetteville State University. It's actually the second oldest black college um, in the state of North Carolina. At the time, I didn't really look at the history of the college. I was like, okay, it's a it's a cheap school. I can go there. I can get my degree and I can get out. <laughs> that was the mentality. And I didn't have to worry about staying on campus because I was just going to stay at home and help my mother out with bills and things like that just to save money. So my father also retired from the military that year as well. And he was like, you know, I'm going to go work. I'm going to go out of state and work somewhere else. So my mother and I were like, okay, sure. You can go ahead and do that if you want to. <laughs> we weren't going to push him or anything. So I started college. And that November was when my father was like, I don't want to be with your mom no more. I want to do my own thing. So that was a very difficult period, starting college and then, you know, having this big ripple effect happen in my family, seeing my mother, you know, she was very bright and cheery, but then she was like super sad, depressed. It was very, very bad time. So that first year of college was really like a struggle, emotionally, mentally, trying to focus on school, but also had to focus on my mother. It was just a lot mm -hmm. of stuff going on in that time period. And then my brother too, he was feeling like he was left behind. Like I was feeling I was left behind earlier <laughs> when he came along, he was feeling the exact same way. And me being the oldest child, I felt like I had to set an example and I kind of had to be strong for her, which was difficult mm -hmm. because I kind of put my feelings on like the back burner of the relationship. Mm -hmm. I didn't really think about it. I was just like focused on making sure she was okay. And I was also dating somebody that didn't work, obviously, that he was like, nah. I look back at that relationship and I'm just like, why did I even get with that guy? But that <laughs> that that didn't work out either. So it was just a lot of emotional, mental to toil on myself in my mind. So it was a very deep struggle that, that first year of college. Wow. Yeah, that sounds intense. It so was very do intense. You, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a lot of things all at the same time and um, did you start chanting that first year of college? Yes, I actually started chanting when I saw my mother, like, really deep down the dumps. Um, mm. I was just like, I cannot let this, whatever it's going on in my life, um, creep in and destroy my family. I had to, like, get this going. I had to chant. I had to start to, you know, change what was going on in my environment. So I was really chanting and like really pushing my brother to chant because he's the type of person <laughs> he's like, no, I'm okay. And I'm not going to chant. <laughs> but I, I really was like, I have to, I have to really chant for my family to get out of this, whatever's going wow. on. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing that you just were like, okay, 
full responsibility mode right away. Yeah, like, people I was, could react all <laughs> kinds of ways. And... Yes, uh, I think it was good that I actually didn't go away for college because if this happened when I was away, I don't think I would have made it in, instead of being at home. Um, and a lot mm-hmm. of people say, you have to go away, you got to go away. I was just like, financially, I couldn't do that. So I had to stay home with my mother. And it's it's not a bad thing to not go away. I think, you know, especially with everything that's going on now, like, I think it's okay to stay home and go to college because you're saving money. <laughs> and, you know, you'll, you'll eventually get to the point to where you'll be, you know, by yourself and able to step out on your own two feet. So I don't see it as a detriment that I didn't leave, leave, yeah. I put that in quotations, leave. Cause I did, you know, still go have all my friends. I still did stuff on campus, but I was at home really, you know, helping her as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's so inspiring. And I think, yeah, you're totally right. Because we we do say, I mean, this has come up on so many episodes of just like, like what you said, where you are is the mountain. And so tackle it head on. Practice Buddhism exactly where you are in whatever situations in front of you. Um, So, yeah, I feel like that. I totally agree with that. So can I just ask, um, you know, from the perspective of someone who's listening, um, who's totally new to chanting, why did you kind of gravitate towards chanting? Like you mentioned, um, you needed to sort of like change your environment. And so for people who don't really know much about Buddhism, why chanting to change your environment? Sort of like what in your life was like, okay, I'm going to, and then day to day, what did you actually do for someone who can't imagine what your Buddhist practice looked like? And and how did it help you get through that time? So, um, wow, that's a good question. (laughs) Um, So from the perspective of someone who's new, I would say that chanting in a sense, it's it's like a rhythmic, I don't, I, I would say more like a rhythmic, I don't want to say bath or shower, but like a rhythmic <laughs> cleansing of your spirit. That's what I would say. It's like mm. when I chant, I feel very like renewed, refreshed. Mm. So whenever I wasn't chanting that day, I could feel it. Like you could feel it and you could see it in just my attitude, my energy. But after I chanted, I could I felt this sense of relief and I felt the sense of like this cloud was gone. And yes, even though I had all these issues going on, I felt like I renewed clarity and perspective of how to tackle each issue. Um, mm-hmm. Whether it came to, you know, having to find some gas money, <laughs> having to figure out where I'm going to eat at. <laughs> uh, am I going to go to the calf or am I going to go home and get something to eat? <laughs> um, how to study for this exam, you know, how am I going to focus on this or that? I would say it was like a, a cleansing of the spirit but also a renewal and better focus of my mind. That's what I would say. Um, And it really helped me realize that your environment is based on yourself. It's not just based on somebody else. Like you could get mad at your friend and be like, man, this person did this to me. I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. Okay. But why did that happen exactly? Like let's break that down a little bit. Was it, you know, the way maybe you came or approached the person was it something that maybe you had said? Maybe you could have reacted a little differently to the situation. So I think we like to blame others a lot. But honestly, I think it depends on how you approach the situation as well. Mm. Um, I love this. I love this book. <laughs> it's called The Other Westmore by Westmore. He's a great author. And um, I saw him actually at my university. He came and spoke. 
And he talked about, um, he asked the other Westmore who was in prison. That's what he talks about. Some, somebody else who's named Westmore is in prison, but he went on to do great things. And it's like two different people with the same name in two different environments. So wow. he, so he asked him, are people dependent on the ex, um, on their own? No, does an environment make a person basically? If you're, mm-hmm. does your environment to define where you're going to go in life? That was kind of like the question. And the guy said, I don't think people are defined by their environment. I think they're defined on the expectations they put on themselves. So if you're, ex- if you expect yourself to be in this deep, dark hole of depression and all this stuff, then that's what you're going to do. But if you determine and you put that expectation on yourself that you're going to do greater and greater things, then your environment will not dictate where you go in your life. So that's kind of why I put high expectations on myself. <laughs> and I tell other people, don't be dependent on your environment because your environment can change. Like you can move place to place if you want to, but there's also the environment of like your soul, like who you are as a person. If your mind is clouded and you're not in the right mindset and you're shifting place to place, then uh, yeah, you're going to expect that your expectations for yourself are going to be low. I know yeah. people who've had some very, who've, who've done a lot of great things in life and have great environment, great friends, great parents and things like that, but their expectations for themselves were super low. So mm-hmm. even though their environment was enriching, they put those expectations that they weren't going to make it. But I know people who had bad, who grew up in quote unquote bad environments or difficult environments that are doing great things. Because they put that expectation that they were going to get out of wherever they were at and move forward with their life. So, yeah, it's a yeah, great book. that's awesome. Yeah, it, it feels so Buddhist. I mean, that yes. basic principle <laughs> is the core of Buddhism. So, yeah, I'll definitely check it out. I, I hadn't heard of it. Um, so so that's actually like a great place to to ask what happened next. So, so what I – just to recap, what I'm hearing from you is that you – you started chanting because your first year of college, life threw these very big things at you and you just, you needed to take care of your family and also do school and all these other things. So you started chanting um, and it helped you um, sort of see things clearly and take the wise action to navigate every day. How did it turn out then like with your family and um, over time, like how did you, your expectations for yourself start to change. <laughs> I like how you said that. <laughs> so um, I started doing much more Buddhist activities. So I started doing more discussion meetings. I started doing a lot more stuff within the community. Um, and I started like really becoming a leader, I would say, in my, in my SDI family. Um, mm-hmm. And that in turn was helping me as well grow as a person too. I think, I think I talk about this a lot, how I was MC. I started being an MC or like someone who stands up in front of the Buddhist meetings and talks and gives like the, okay, today, now we're going to have this and we're going to do this next. Um, when I was 13, so when I started in Young Women's Division, um, and they would continually ask me to be MC over and over again. And I got tired of it. <laughs> I was like, there are so many other capable people in this in this district. Please ask somebody else. But um, I started to see that around me, there were not a lot of capable youth that I thought there were. Um, and I started really chanting for more young women's division to come out, more young men. But of course, I live on an army base. 
so people come in now a lot so um for me it was like trying to transform my community into to bring more buddhists to bring more people to come up and blossom as bodhisattvas of the earth and to really have more people uh come into our buddhist community I was able to bring more people to meetings and I felt like that was really helping me encourage myself to not let, you know, this issues with my father, issues with my parents come into play. And also around that time, my parents were finalizing their divorce as well. So it was just a lot of things going on, a lot of issues. <laughs> my brother was acting out. A lot of things were going on because of what had happened. Um, and... I was just like trying to, you know, still keep things together. Mother was doing better emotionally, um, but I could definitely see that there was a shift in how I viewed things because I still wasn't blaming everybody like I used to blame everybody. I was like, oh, this is happening because of this and this and this. And I was just mm-hmm. like, I need to take a step back. I need to breathe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I need to chant. I need to focus and come back to what's going to happen. So. I would say that that kind of helped push me into the direction of being more outspoken and helping others through what yeah. I've been through. So, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's really, yeah, that's encouraging. I didn't even think about the fact that practicing Buddhism on an army base yeah. it, uh, in my mind. You know, I can't even envision. <laughs> yeah, just uh, what an amazing place to grow a Buddhist community. <laughs> Um, thank you for sharing that. So so maybe let's transition into talking about what you're doing now, because I remember when we spoke on the phone, you said um, even just like getting through school and then identifying the work that you want to do. And now you're doing your master's was a journey and you used Buddhism to navigate it. So after this, like what sounds like first big experience of of supporting your family and like reaching a place where you can take a step back and you know, take it a day at a time and chant about each of these things instead of blaming your environment. Oh, that's huge. First of all, I think that's a life lesson <laughs> yes. people don't learn their whole life. <laughs> so that's encouraging. But yeah, what what happened or how did how did you sort of approach school and what was that experience like? So in school, I got into like doing research. I, I just I always love science. Ever since I was little, I love science. I thought I was going to be an astronaut one day or an astronomer. <laughs> Something around science, because I love the stars. I got a telescope when I was little. I was just like, I really wanted to do all this. So I started leaning more towards biology in high school. And I went and did like science fairs, I did science experiments and stuff like that. And I really enjoyed telling people about research and telling people about science and what I, what I, what I want to do, what I could do. So I was like, you know, what? I'll pursue this field because I think that childlike mentality of always wanting to learn, always wanting to find out the question to these, to these um, solutions and figure out things. Just always, I've always had that. So mm-hmm. lean me to wanting to pursue biology. So I, I'm, I did biology, did research. Um, and I was, remember, I was chanting to get this internship. And I was just like, I want to get an internship so bad. <laughs> um, and I was just like, dang, I kept getting denied and denied and denied. And I was like, okay, my grades just weren't good enough. And, you know, seeing my friends get into all these different internships. Someone went to Harvard. Somebody else went to Yale. Someone else went to Cornell for their internships. And I was just like, dang, am I the only one not getting one? And I also, you know, I got some flack from a professor of mine who was just like, you're not going to get anywhere if you want to think like that and blah, blah, blah. 
he, he was a very negative person. Um, and that negativity kind of brought me down as well. So, um, and then I was just like, okay, I'm going to get into this internship. You know, I'm going to make it. So, um, at first I thought I was probably going to have to stay at my institution and just do some research there over the summer. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to make the best of this situation. So I went to the office of research and the lady was like, wait, I got to talk to you real quick. So I was like, okay. I thought I was in trouble. (laughs) I thought I was in trouble or something happened. And she was like, okay, so Duke University said they want you to come to do internship there. And I was like, really? And she was like, yes. I was able to to figure it out and get everything together. And I was like, yes. So I went to Duke and did an internship there. I had a great professor who was also a minority professor, too. And he told me about his journey and his um, immigrant family and stuff. And I was just like, yes, I found the perfect internship, perfect mentor. And someone who I could really bounce my ideas off of, of wanting to do health disparities research and wanting to work with refugees. And he was a very, like, for, for everything. So I, I was just like, yes, I got an internship. And I was able to, you know, present my research and do all this and that. So, and then the next year, even though I didn't go anywhere, I was able to do a different research project at my institution. So it was really good to, to see what I was chanting for actually become reality. Because I think people think, oh, if I'm just going to say these little words, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> and I'm just like, yes, it is. <laughs> but it's not just chanting. It's also not having doubt in your mind and having that clear goal of, okay, I'm going to get this. I'm going to do this. And I'm going to chant to get there. But it's not just chance. It's also the action behind it as well. You have to be doing those actions and causing those uh, effects to happen to pull it to your life. So it's mm-hmm. like, I guess you could say that you're like pulling in like something, like a rope. And if you don't pull hard enough, it's not going to get there fast. But if you keep pulling really hard, it's going to get there. So chanting is a way to be like a magnet to pull in all the benefits that you want in your life. So that's kind of how I say it for like new guests and people that are interested and I explain it. It's like a magnet. You chanting, huh. you bringing that magnetism. Everybody's coming towards you. Oh, I like this person. This person is nice. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of how I <laughs> envisioned it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Were you always that kind of person or do you feel like because of chanting, you became that kind of person? Because I'm just thinking, you know, if that's not your personality, like in my in my for example I'm a naturally really reserved person right so if someone was telling me that you can chant and become this more kind of positive magnetic person who's like making all these creating all these effects um I'd be like that's nice but that's on my personality so there's no hope for me (laughs) you know I'm just curious what what that was like for you like did you already sort of believe in yourself or was that um what you say about doubt was that like something that you had to really challenge that's something that I still challenge day to day. The doubt yeah. is still there. I would say I was I was extremely shy person growing up, extremely shy. And I think chanting and doing activities within the SGI allowed me to really become more confident in myself because I don't think I was confident enough to like mm. do to be MC or to to do things or to to lead a discussion meeting or anything like that. But it wasn't until I really started doing it within the organization and then chanting and really seeing that, oh, 
I can do this, that I started to become much more confident in myself. So no, I wasn't always this person. <laughs> I wasn't always, you know, really bubbly and goofy and stuff. I was kind of reserved too, but I learned to to not, I don't have to be so reserved. I mean, there are some mm-hmm. things you do want to reserve, of course, but it's okay to be that magnet. It's okay to, to you know, smile every day. It's okay to be a happy person. Because, you know, if you mm-hmm. don't smile, then, you know, what's life? You got to have a good time, you know? <laughs> you you got you to gotta feel happy about yourself. You know, there are people out there who are not doing well. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're suffering compared. I don't want to compare sufferings, but, you know, you here, you're alive today. You woke up this morning. Okay, you're winning in life. You woke up. <laughs> you woke mm-hmm. up. You're, you're here because, you know, there's people that are not here anymore. Something happened. They had some type of thing going on in their family. You know, I I remember back home, there was someone who was very close to a friend of mine. He passed away. These things happen. And, you know, you have to really cherish your life. And I think that's where I come from, cherishing my life. Mm So, yeah. 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 And for everyone listening, chanting Nam-myoho Renge-kyo is basically the ultimate affirmation of cherishing and respecting yes, life. Yes, cherish and like, respect your life. That's basically what it means. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. So I totally, totally resonate with all of that. And what you said about the the discussion meetings too, we've done a couple episodes and, you know, talks about the Buddhist community um, a bit. And, you know, they're basically just people gathering and talking and discussing Buddhist concepts and sharing stories and experiences. But it's so true. To, I didn't really make that connection of, that is sort of the ideal, safe, joyful environment in which you can explore these other versions of yourself so that you can then become that person in the rest of your life. So that's a really good point. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so this is how you discovered what you want to do. And now you're doing your master's. Um, but this, I'm, I'm so curious about the identity piece of it, because it seems like that was such a such a major thing for you growing up, um, moving around so much and having all of these identities that, and you mentioned now in the work that you're doing, you want to um, focus on people who are historically underserved or even refugees, which is really specific. So curious how, like, how did you come to terms with that, that struggle? What was that like for you in terms of being yourself? And and then what's your dream now based on that? Oh, wow. That's a deep question. <laughs> but a very good <laughs> no question. Pressure. But a very good question because I, I believe a lot of people can relate. So um, mm-hmm. being a child of immigrants, but also being a mixed race child. So my mother, she's a black, but she's Latina. So she's Afro-Latina, if those who know that context. Basically mm-hmm. someone who is from the African diaspora, who is from a Latin country. So she looks African, she speaks Spanish, she also speaks English, and she speaks French. So she's trilingual, actually. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And then my father, he's Mexican, Mexican-American, so he presents as a Mexican man. So, you know, those two people getting together, and then there was a little bit of, I don't want to say backlash in his family, but they were very, a bit concerned of why he's marrying a Black woman. That was one thing that my mother told me, mm-hmm. that his family didn't really accept her at first because she was black. Even though she spoke Spanish, even though she was from a Latin country, they didn't really accept her very much. So she used um, her practice in a way to help transform them to see her in a better light and to see her as an equal, which was an, it was just something I, I didn't realize. I was like, oh, okay. So 
you know, growing up mixed race as well as within a lot of different identities and, you know, growing up and explaining to people, you know, I, I am black, I, I am Hispanic, I, I'm Afro-Latina, people denying me saying, oh, you can't be black and speak Spanish. There was a lot of people saying that. Oh my gosh. And I was just like, okay, whatever. Um, so at first I was just like, that's not true. That's not true. Like, you know, how do you explain myself? How do you explain my mom? And, you know, having to educate people on the African diaspora as well. Um, explaining that, you know, a lot of the slaves came to Central and South America. So explaining the history and the context of all that was something that I educated myself on as well as educated others on as well. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the importance of going to a historically black college was that there was a lot of people who, who well, of course, a lot of black individuals as well, but uh, a lot of them understood and uh, and and could understand my my plight and my context and things like that. But when I was at a predominantly white institution, a lot of people would be very judgy, judgmental, and saying that you have to be in this box. <laughs> you cannot get out of this box. And I was like, no, <laughs> I'm gonna break out this box. <laughs> That's not me. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, really explaining to them, you know, who I am and feeling like, okay, this is me. I am this person. And I think, Going to Panama for the first time, seeing my mother's side for the first time. I went when I was 19. She left when she was 20. So it was just like an interesting parallel <laughs> of me leaving the United States for the first time and then her, you know, leaving Panama. It was like, whoa, I'm 19. She was 20 when she left. Like, what? So I went back and when I got to Panama, believe it or not, I stepped off that plane and I felt like I was home. <laughs> like it was just so huh. warm and then everybody looked like me there. So I didn't feel like I was out of place. And I mm -hmm. felt so, I was so loving, it was so warm, the food was so good. And I just had a great time. And that's how the family is also bilingual too. So like it was just seeing like my family and seeing the history and my grandmother explaining about her grandparents and their plight of moving to a, a predominantly Spanish-speaking nation from a predominantly white-speaking nation. She explained all that, and it was just so beautiful to hear about that family history. And through that identity, I was just like, wow, I can't be ashamed of who I am because I come from greatness. <laughs> I don't want anybody <laughs> to be ashamed of who they are because <laughs> you guys come from greatness. Like, your ancestors mm -hmm. fought uh, to, to be here, to live here. Um, and to be equal. So I'm, I'm very thankful that I'm here. So that leads into me wanting to work with, you know, underrepresented groups and refugees and wanting to help others that may have not had the same opportunities I had. So mm -hmm. that's really where that love comes from of other cultures and wanting to help others. Because, you know, I, I have come from a very mixed family. So I really want to help yeah. others who look like me. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I yeah, I just love the way that you said that. Can I can I ask? I mean, I know you you did sort of touch on this already. Um, but when you say like, oh, I can't be ashamed of who I am, is that how you felt when you were younger? Yeah, I did. I felt like that a lot. I felt like that a lot because mm -hmm. I would say it was because I was like the only person who looked like me in my class. Like there are people who presented black, people who presented Hispanic. But I was always the person who presented ambiguously. They didn't know where to put mm -hmm. me at. And when I would explain to my black friends, you know, I am Hispanic, they would say, I just don't feel like, like, I would feel like I wasn't black enough to be in that group. 
And then the Hispanic people be like, well, you don't speak Spanish fluently, so you can't be really part of us either. So it was like, I was always half other. I was never mm. complete. And that's where that kind of came from. Because I was like, man, if only I was full this or full this, then I could feel part of the group. But then I realized, you know what? It's okay. Because I don't have to belong to just one group or two groups. I belong to all these groups. So I could go in between and go different places and help explain my experiences to multiple people. So I, I just was like, you know what? Whatever. I'm just going to do me. <laughs> do me, as they yeah. say. And say yes. So I, I am this person. This is who I am. So Yeah. Oh, that's so amazing and encouraging. And um, I'm also curious... Did this sort of enter into your mind or your heart as you were chanting at all? Like when you did sort of feel that? I mean, I imagine there must have been so many days where you had to face a comment or a question and you felt some kind of way. Oh, um, how'd you chant about it? <laughs> uh, I think the the comment that really, I, I don't want to say hurt, but it kind of stuck to me was, I think the comment of, oh, that's not true. That can't be real. You're lying. Like, I, people would say I was lying about who I was. And I was just like, you need to educate yourself. Um, and I, I was like, okay, I can't be, can't be rude back to someone who's, who just doesn't know. It's ignorance. But I feel like if you're, if you're around my age, you should at least educate yourself. <laughs> but at the same time, many people just don't know because they didn't grow up the way I grew up in a very diverse mm -hmm. household. So I have to think about that as well. But I would say, yes, that did creep into my mind when I was chanting a few times. But, um, and I also spoke to my mom about it. And my mom was like, you know, those people are just, they don't understand. They don't understand the greatness that we are. They don't understand that. So don't worry about that at all. And I think my grandmother, she, when I asked her about this too, she was like, well, she, I asked her, you know, how come people, you know, they feel this type of way towards like the black race in particular? And she was like, you know, I feel like we are the greatest because they, nobody really wants to, people try to move away from us. They don't want to mix with us because we're so great. And I was just like, okay. Oh my God, I love her. We're so great. That's why nobody wants to mix with us because they just can't take it. They can't handle the greatness. <laughs> and I, we would laugh about it and stuff. And uh, But what she said was was true. It's like, you know, don't worry about those people because at the end of the day, one day you'll be doing your own thing and they'll be like, dang, I should have made that connection with her instead of judging her or feeling like, oh, she's mm -hmm. not worthy of me talking to her or something else. So uh, I would say that I, I feel very honored to be part of this family, but also to be part of the SGI family also, because I feel like whenever I'm at a discussion meeting, I'm, I'm, I see multiple arrays of different people there. So I, I feel like, you know, <laughs> I have my best friends over here. got my, my second mothers over here, my second fathers over there, grandmothers. Like, I feel like the SGI family really puts a, a big hug around me and just says, hey, it doesn't matter. We love you. <laughs> so I, I'm very yeah. thankful for that. Yeah, I, I'm curious because you mentioned like when you were growing up, um, that even like the Buddhist community, there weren't that many people that look like you. And one thing that I've appreciated, especially having grown up in it, is how much even that has changed over time because it is a grassroots community and because 
more and more people start practicing Buddhism and people move around and all those things. So does that feel different to you now? Yes, it's definitely a lot different now. Um, from, you know, me being, you know, in, you know, a small little army base to me moving over here to Atlanta, it's a lot different now. I see a lot of different people and a lot of different people who look like me, people who don't look like me, people from all different places. And I just, I love talking to the people who've been here for a long time, practiced a long time, hearing their experiences, because it really gives me like an, an opportunity to learn from them, but also to learn from other youth as well that come to the mm -hmm. meetings. And I've gained some great friendships through um, the SGI. Yeah, yeah, same. Absolutely. I, I feel close to people that I, if I just stayed in my little bubble of how I grew up or where I work, I would never get to connect with. Um, so I, yeah, I totally love it. So so let me just sort of recap again, and then I, I have two more questions. So it sounds like what you're saying is you you grew up around this Buddhist practice, but you have some amazing women in your family <laughs> who, you know, carried this on. And then you reach this crossroads when you, you know, go to college, which interestingly, it's like you said you were 19 when you went to Panama. So this was all happening at the same time. Like yeah. while you're navigating the family stuff and college, you also are navigating the identity stuff and have this sort of, I guess, like breakthrough and how you see yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so all of that, I just, it's so encouraging. So, and, and so now um, you're, you know, pursuing this career path, which is amazing. And I hope that there's a lot more people pursuing it because it <laughs> feels so important. Yes. I mean, you can't talk about healthcare without talking about diversity period. So, um, so, but I'm just, uh, I'm curious, like in terms of Buddhism over the course of these experiences, is there any Buddhist concept or like piece of encouragement or something that you've learned or sort of held close to you? Um, that is your favorite that's like helped you with this? Mm, that's a good question because they're all really good concepts. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would say, um, well, I mean, I, I do love winter, uh, um, winter always turns to spring. That's a good concept. But I think, uh, re what is it? Removing the trance. Oh, um, I can never... casting off the transient and go. revealing the truth. Casting off the transient and revealing the truth. I feel like a lot of people need to know that because <laughs> a lot of people try to put this shield over them of, oh, everything mm -hmm. is okay. I'm doing great. But in reality, they're not. And I think if, if we can cast out that, and really be honest with ourselves and say, hey, like, I'm struggling. I need some help. <laughs> Please help me over here. I'm drowning. Like, instead of saying, no, I'm okay, while you're, like, sinking <laughs> with your ship, I think, you know, a lot of people would, would raise that hand and be like, hey, I need some help. Please help me. Like, okay, here's Namyo Horenge Kyo, and it's a rope that can pull you out of this suffering. Um, and I think if a lot of people be honest and say, hey, like, I really need help, whether it be mental health, physical health, or I just need help with my family. I think really, mm -hmm. you know, being honest with yourself and also respecting your own life and say, hey, I need some help. Like, I really need someone to help me navigate this or help me through this or help me with this. Like, I, I think that's something that a lot of young people need to need to do. Like, asking for help is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of mm -hmm. that you really are valuing your own life. So I would say that's yeah. a really big a component of why I want to help others because I was in that similar situation where I was just like, no, I'm not going to ask for no help. I can do this by myself. 
But in reality, I was like drowning and I couldn't do it. And I was like, you know what? I actually do need some help. <laughs> Please help me. <laughs> and uh, I think that's where the SGI really put their arms around me. I was like, okay, I, I will help you. We got you. We'll hold you close. So, mm. yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, for, for anyone who's listening who's never heard of Casting Off the Transient, Revealing the True, it's a really deep concept, but it's sort <laughs> of, um, how would we explain it in the simplest way? Sort of like you have to cast off your transient identity or like your circumstances or how you see yourself now in order to reveal your your true identity, which is like a supremely respect worthy person mm-hmm. and if you operate from that place you live a different life is that fair is that yeah that, that's, that's a pretty fair definition yeah yeah and yeah that's so important too then if you do operate from that place then like asking for help is actually wisdom and courage it's not driven by like the the ego or self-protective i'm fine leave me alone kind of thing yeah i'm fine totally. leave me alone I, I don't i don't need help uh, yeah, that, that, I don't want to be back in that place again. Uh, I want to mm-hmm. be in the place to where I, I really value my life. So, cause there was a time where I was just like, you know what? I don't value my life no more. And I was just like, you know what? I'm just gonna, you know, walk off this cliff or do this or do that. Like I was really having like really bad thoughts at one point in my life, but my mother was just like, no, <laughs> she was like, no, we are not. No, you're not doing this. Um, and so she was like, you need to seek help, like mental health. And I was just like, okay, all right. You know, there's a lot of like, I don't want to do this. I don't, I don't need to speak to a therapist and all this and that. But when I got to grad school, I really found a really good therapist. And I was just like, wow, like, this is actually really good. <laughs> um, because I was just having a lot of issues with just mental health, depression, you know, a lot of things going on in my life. Um, and she was just like, you know, I, I, I want to do my best to help you. And she really did. And I was just like, wow, this is, this is really good. And, um, and before I graduated, uh, my undergrad, I was, I decided to start taking medication for my depression, mm. which is also a very big step too. I, I never was like, I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to pretend like I'm a zombie and do this. Like, I really was, I really thought I was about to be a zombie on this medication, <laughs> But um, when she explained it to me and she told me, you know, this is this is just a way for you to stay uh, in your present self to just make sure that you're okay as of right now. But eventually you're not going to be on this forever and you're going to be done with this. And I was like, okay, all right, I I guess I'll I'll do this to help to, to just make my mother happy and to just try it. So I tried it and I was like, wow, I actually feel a lot better. So I started taking medication, started going to some therapy here and there. And I really started valuing my life a little bit better. And, you know, I was I was able to graduate um, I, and then I got into grad school and I was like, you know, I'm really going to have to seek therapy for real this time. Be a little bit more serious about it. So I started thinking, seeking therapy. And now I'm at the point to where I'm actually coming off my medication, believe it or not. Wow. <laughs> It'll be two years uh, since I started and I'm actually in the process of, of coming off. So you're not going to be on medication forever, y'all. It's it's going to take time. And uh, yeah, so that was a, you know, wow. th- that's why I'm talking Huge. about re- like removing the, what is it? Trans- I can never say that. Removing transient. The transient. Revealing the truth because, 
if I didn't do that, maybe I wouldn't be here. Maybe I would have not made it. So that's why I'm like, respect your life and seek that help. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Congratulations. That's huge. I I know, man. It's really huge. (laughs) Um, Can I just ask, because we sort of skipped from like freshman year to the end of college, but it sounds like these sort of mental health issues came about in between whatever you're comfortable sharing that like got you to the point of seeking this kind of help and how you were chanting at that time so um I I think at the time I was chanting just to relieve myself from whatever was going on in my life and I was hanging out with maybe people that weren't necessarily serious about college they were dabbling into you know partying late at night drinking things like that but I realized that that path was probably not the best path for me I got into some issues with some people Um, And I was just like, you know what, I need to remove myself from the situation entirely. So I was just like, you know what, I'm gonna transfer schools. I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna leave this school and go to a different school. (laughs) And I was like, okay, I'm gonna do that. And so I transferred. And that's why I have the experience of going to HBCU and then leaving and going to a historically, you know, white college. So when I left and went to that college, um, I thought it was so much better. But then I realized it really was not because even though I had removed myself from that environment, the heartache and the pain and everything was still there. So it was still there, even though I had removed myself from that situation. So during that time, I realized, you know, I really need to come to terms with um, some abuse that had happened in my past. I need to come to terms with that. And I think that was when I realized, you know, I'm only with my thoughts at this point. <laughs> I'm not using like any type of other uh, um, things to really cover up that those issues that were really underlying so being by myself mm-hmm. I think was actually a benefit to myself because it made me realize that I have a lot of issues that I need to get rid of <laughs> I need to figure this stuff out and telling my mother you know opening up to her about you know the, what had happened to me and everything she was very supportive and she was like you need to seek some help like seriously like we need to get you somewhere and after that year I left and went back to my previous school. (laughs) I came back. I was like, hey, y'all, I'm back. (laughs) And uh, my teachers were like, welcome back. It's good to see you again. I was just like, yeah, I'm back. (laughs) But that time I I told myself I need to be with people that were actually going to value who I was as a person and really be in those types of crowds that I want to be a part of. Whether it was, you know, I was starting to join different groups that were about advancing science and about some honor societies, as well as deciding to really pursue um, music a little bit more. And as well as, you know, being part of research groups. So I started being a part of groups that I felt were more geared towards someone really geared towards my life for me instead of being part of groups that. We're more geared towards let's have fun and let's party and let's drink and let's do things. And it really wasn't really wasn't safe or healthy for my mental health or well-being or liver or anything. <laughs> it really was not healthy at all. So um, really, you know, coming to terms with being a survivor of abuse, as well as coming to terms with everything that had happened and, and really starting to learn to forgive, which was a very difficult thing to do to try to forgive the abuser. That was very difficult for me to do and something that I struggled with a lot throughout my process. So I was like, you know what? <clears throat> I gotta really forgive. So I'm sitting in front of the go homes and I was just like, I don't think I can do this. <laughs> and then I was just like, you know what? I really need to just 
forgive. But not forget. Don't forget. Just just forgive <laughs> for yourself, for your heart, and for your mind. Um, mm-hmm. Because that was really eating away at my mind. I could tell that that was really, really pushing me away from seeking romantic relationships and things like that because of me thinking about, oh, every guy is going to be like this. Every guy is going to be like this person. So I had to really think and really dwell deep into my heart, which is why that theme keeps coming up <laughs> of casting off and revealing the truth. Like I was like, I really got to just change this, whatever's deep inside. So I really need to transform this. And I, I finally was able to transform it mm. and no longer allow that to really control my, my life. So, wow. Yeah, that was, that was, deep. oh my goodness. Thank <laughs> you for sharing. Yeah, it almost sounds like that whole sort of experience at 17, 18 with your family was like preparing you with the tools to then take on this even bigger challenge. Yeah. Which took longer to get through. Yeah, but I'm so encouraged by everything you're saying, Lorena. I mean, it's like what just just accepting ourselves and wanting to to move forward and value ourselves. Like it can do wonders for your life. Really, um, thank you for sharing all of this. So I guess just my my last question is, um, I always like to ask everyone you know, what advice they might give to someone who's who's listening. But in in your case, I almost feel like. What advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, Lord. <laughs> someone who's new to chanting or maybe like, you know, uh, okay. I don't know, 18-year-old Lorena who's like, okay, I'm going to try this, but like might be feeling the way that you did where, you know, I don't know that I fit in everywhere. I, I have these things in my life that I haven't resolved. Um, all of that. Like what sort of, you know, one piece of advice would you give to someone who's who's thinking about chanting but in that type of a situation? I think I would say is to really sit down with yourself. Cause I don't think that we sit down with ourselves enough. I think we, mm-hmm. we like to keep ourselves busy and not think about deeper issues. We like to stay surface level. So I would say sit down with yourself and then write down like, you know, your goals. What do you want to achieve? Uh, what, what do you, what are, what do you feel are some weaknesses in your life? Because they're not weaknesses, really. They're just things that you have to improve upon. So if you think about them in a more positive way, then you will start to see that those changes are starting to happen in the positive way. So maybe you're a shy person. Okay, that's not necessarily a weakness, but it, it you can start to say, okay, where does this shyness come from initially? Is it from lack of confidence? Is it from not knowing something? Is it from just, you know, not being unsure about where you want to go in life? Uh, where does that come from? So really sitting down with yourself, writing out your goals, writing out things that you want to improve upon, and really just sitting down and deciding, you know, today is the day. From now on, make that vow with yourself because a vow is something that cannot be broken. <laughs> okay, promises can be broken, and goals can be met, but a vow for your life cannot be broken. Um, so make those vows that what you want to change in your life, and there you go. That's all I. That's all I got for you. <laughs> <laughs> Hearing Lorena's journey, and she's only in her 20s, really reminded me that we can chant about anything and everything in our heart, and doing so truly unlocks the wisdom to take the best action to heal, create a supportive environment, and move forward, whatever that means to you. 
For those who've been participating in the seven-day refresh, we hope you enjoyed it. And if you'd like to get connected to your local Buddhist community, just email us at connect at sgi-usa.org. As always, check out bootability.org for more great articles and content from throughout the week. That's all for today, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.